think one really important thing is this distinction of like what is happiness and mm. the Stoics definition of happiness is very different. Welcome to the Humanist Agenda podcast. My name is Kenny and these are my co-hosts for today. Will. How's it going? Selena. Hello. And Cherry. Hi. This is going to be the second episode in our series of podcasts that aim to bring some of the content from Hallow's meetings and lectures to you. Today's episode will be a follow-up to our recent lecture on Stoicism and the positive emotional effects of Stoicism as a life philosophy, as well as the use of Stoic philosophy in developing coping strategies for a wide range of mental and psychological ailments. For those interested, the full presentation on Stoicism will be available to listen to in our first episode of the podcast series. Today we're going to begin uh, today's episode with a brief summary of this recent lecture on Stoicism given by my fellow humanist member, Selena Everling. Take it away, Selena. So just a recap of Rod Martin's talk from last week. Stoicism is a philosophy um, which was founded in Athens around 300 BC by Zeno of Citium. And what's really interesting is that this philosophy has gained recent interest in probably the last two decades. It's kind of had a rise with a lot of philosophers and also just lay people kind of uh, looking at Stoicism to maybe kind of guiding their life. So the really key tenets of Stoicism is looking at how to live a happy life. So um, eudaimonia, which is roughly translates to satisfaction and happiness. So this idea that if a person were to live a virtuous life, so if a person is good and leaves the good life, that as a result they will be happy and tranquil. What people really think about Stoicism is this idea that you don't show your negative emotions, and that's actually a really big misunderstanding. The real idea of Stoicism is that you understand and are able to control negative emotions, and that you have an understanding of these emotions so that they don't control you. The kind of four cardinal virtues that align with stoicism are wisdom, so knowing what to do in any situation, justice, treating people with dignity and fairness, which I think also goes very well with humanism, and courage, so having the moral courage to do the right thing even when it is difficult. And the last aspect of that is temperance, which is having self-constraint and avoiding excess and addictions. So really avoiding things that don't actually make you happy. So avoiding kind of this desire for fame, money, status and really realizing that happiness kind of comes from within as flowery as that sounds and i think the really underlying thing for me which i found was that you should not depend on things that you cannot control so live a good life and be a good person and as a result you'll feel this happiness and tranquility and you can't just find it in other material items or in other people yeah one the one of the topics uh in the talk that really kind of spoke to me was around giving up of control I think definitely I can kind of reflect back in my life where maybe I spent too much effort or time spent on things that are completely outside of my control. I think hearing that, it really kind of spoke to me because definitely over the years kind of realized, you know, there are certain things that you just can't control and there are certain things you can control, but it's uh, making sure you're aware of, you know, what is within your control before uh, getting too upset about something, for example. I, I don't know how... How did you kind of take the lecture? I really liked it, but I found I had a couple questions around it. I don't know if you guys can answer them for me. Rod talked about um, the idea that you want to also strive for good health. You want to strive for wealth. You want to strive for, you know, these material things and yet not have a dependence on them. But how can you strive for something? How can you work towards something without being attached to it? So that actually is also covered in Stoicism. So they talk about this idea of indifference. So while those things don't actually make you happy, so while, you know, having a good house and a good job don't really, like, actually make you happy because you could have those things and still be depressed, which I think we can agree upon that just mm -hmm. because someone has a house doesn't mean that they're instantly a happy person. However, it is a preferred indifference. So you prefer to have a job, you prefer to have a house, um, and you'd prefer to have good health. So I think it's this idea that it's not a negative thing to kind of go for, but just not letting it, like Kenny was saying, this idea of control. So don't letting that overwhelm you so that you feel like you have to get the job, you have to get this house, you you need to have this status. Yeah, a lot of it, it almost sounds like it's a frame of mind. There's something uh, negative that you perceive 
or you know, let's say something in your life you perceive as negative, it may not actually be negative. Someone desiring fame and not getting fame, well, that doesn't mean it's a bad thing to not have fame. Like there's a lot of value in staying in the background <laughs> and not having to deal with paparazzi or whatever it might be. So I think society sometimes kind of puts up a rosy picture of what it means to be happy, and uh, sometimes people uh, maybe a little too obsessed with what others think. And what other people might believe is the key to happiness. I definitely agree with that. And something I add, would add to that is not only do people obsess over what people think, but they believe that there is an actual direct connection between what other people think of them, let's say, and the way that they should feel about themselves. Or, for example, you mentioned you know, the certain events in your life that you can't control and how relinquishing control in some way helped you. But uh, I, I feel like one of the tenets isn't so much relinquishing control, but taking back control of your emotions through the understanding that the fact that you can't control an event doesn't necessitate that you have to have a certain reaction to that emotional uh, or behavioral reaction to that event. Whereas we have certain beliefs about the events that happen, which are ultimately what is causing or bringing about our feelings about such events. So by acknowledging that we don't have control over the events, but that we ultimately do have control over our beliefs about the events, we end up being the masters and, and ultimately the people in control of our own emotional reactions and feelings. I think these events can be big and small as well. As a personal example, I know that my mom had her birthday recently. We went out to a restaurant. She had called the night before with reservations. They did not write their reservations down. So we got to the restaurant. There wasn't a spot for us. They were all full and all booked up. So we weren't going to be able to eat at that restaurant. And my mom was very upset and she was continually talking to the waiter about this and how upset she was. And I kind of turned to her and I said, there's nothing we can do about this. What is done is done. They didn't write our reservation down. We can't do anything about that. We have to move on and find a different restaurant. And we can't sit here and dwell or we're not going to eat. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's true. I mean, you can put it around waiting for that reservation or starve, essentially. <laughs> um, uh, one example I have, uh, I, I used to volunteer at the local distress center uh, here in London, Ontario. And it was an eye-opening experience for me because as part of the training, we're trained to be active listeners and to really enable people to try to find their own solution. But one of the topics that, or the suggestions that we're trained to always kind of think about or to kind of uh, explore with callers on is around, it goes back to, you know, what is within their control at this moment. You know, a lot of people are maybe going through some tough times. Uh, I know, obviously, there's certain uh, pe people that might call might have mental illness, uh, but then there's also another segment of people that do call because maybe they are just going through a tough time. Maybe they're just going through some emotional distress. And a lot of times, the active listening part follows up with discussion on, you know, what is currently within their control to ease the situation. It doesn't mean we have to solve the problem on the call because, I mean, if someone's highly emotional, you're not going to be able to solve it in the next 15 minutes. But really around talking about right after the call, what is the next immediate thing you can do to help you feel better, to take your mind off of something. It's always about looking at the next step looking at find, trying to find what is the next available option for you that is within your control. Someone might be upset about a breakup. You can't change the situation on that. Someone might be upset about maybe an argument they had with a friend or a parent. Again, can't really change the situation, but there are certain things that you could change in, in the next minute, in the next two minutes uh, to kind of help move you down the path of uh, either healing or feeling better and and those were kind of the things that we, we would always kind of explore with callers. So it, it definitely, it, when I was listening to the lecture, it kind of brought back memories of you know, how, how we dealt with some of these callers. Well, that's, that's really interesting because now that we've heard from Sherry and Kenny, two very different examples that the same approach uh, is effective at, at dealing with. So in Sherry's example, with not being able to eat at the restaurant you want, Obviously not a very big issue, but at the same time, ruminating over it, um, over things that you can't control and having a negative kind of mindset and language in the way that you talk about what happened, like, like well, I need to eat at this restaurant or something of that nature, 
uh, would obviously amplify the situation and make it worse. And the prescription to that was, uh, or at least the stoic prescription to that, would be uh, a reasoned uh, analysis of what's upsetting you and the next steps to move forward. So do you need to eat at this restaurant or could perhaps another restaurant be adequate? And I think obviously a reasonable person would agree that another restaurant could, could be adequate. Um, and in the same situation uh, with Kenny's examples where he has callers calling in with very severe, you know, in some cases maybe issues in their life or mental issues, the same process of critically analyzing the things that are upsetting you and reasoning through them can help you come to some conclusions. And so that is kind of the basis of stoicism and how it can both help you in your daily life with little things, but also in some ways help you in a larger way in dealing with uh, you know, large life events or in some cases mental health issues. And I'm going to be talking a little bit later in the podcast about how the kind of underlying philosophies of stoicism are applied in the medical profession uh, through something called cognitive behavioral therapy as well as rational emotive behavioral therapy. Uh, which are two methods of, uh, of dealing psychologically in a rational way with problems. And I'm definitely going to be talking a little bit more about that later on in the podcast. I think the important thing to remember about practicing stoicism is that it not only affects you, but it affects the people around you. So with my example of the restaurant, while my mom is getting mad, she's experiencing these negative emotions, but she's also talking to a waitress mm. who then who can't control any of the situation, uh, it wasn't her fault. It had nothing to do with her. And so then she's going to have this bad experience because of the negative emotions that were felt. So moving past those emotions is important that we don't cause negative emotions in other people. And I think that's something that's very prominent in humanism as well. We want to help other people. We want to do, do good in the world. How can we do that if we are causing others to experience negative emotions as well. And I think the actual like feeling of negative emotions isn't the issue. It's this ruminating and letting it control. So it's totally reasonable that your mother would be upset by the situation, but it's just by how much is it worth getting upset about? And then is it worth making someone else upset about it? So is it worth making the waitress upset that she now has to feel these things and can't even do anything about it herself? Yeah, th this is where, you know, like logic and... Uh... You know, rational thinking kind of comes in, but it's hard for people when they're at a highly emotional state. So we are I, emotional beings. Yeah. So I guess you know how how does one even try to step back? Uh, I don't know if you guys have examples of you know try to being in an emotional state and trying to you know uh, turn off the animal brain <laughs> inside of you. And so what's really kind of the steps that's required to kind of really you know focus on rational thinking. Well, from a clinical perspective, uh, what's recommended in the therapies of uh, RET and uh, CBT is, is recommended that it is an active process and that it's very difficult sometimes to, you know, to battle and confront these irrational, you know, antagonistic beliefs that you might hold about an event and that, it, that it's not enough to in one moment critically analyze why it's not, why that belief shouldn't negatively affect you. You have to practice that. Um, such that any time that the negative belief comes back into your mind, um, you have to reiterate those reasons that you came up with. And, and it's a continual struggle between, you know, allowing your, your instincts for rationality and emotional, you know, stress to take over versus this rational, maybe not so intuitive to you, uh, understanding, which has allowed you to come to a healthier conclusion. So could you maybe describe to us uh, what this therapy is? Yeah, definitely. So, uh, so basically, it, it's, it's, as I mentioned before, uh, rational mode therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm just going to refer to both of those two for future reference as rational therapies. Both of these two rational therapies evolved from the ideas of stoicism. In, and I'd say the basic premise of these therapies is the idea that humans aren't actually upset about uh, the circumstances that they're in. They're upset about their beliefs and philosophies surrounding the circumstances that they're in. And that ultimately by understanding you can control your beliefs despite not being able to control your circumstances, um, you can gain control over the way that you're, you allow events to affect you emotionally. So the classic model is the A, so that's the ABC model of therapy. They would identify the action or the uh, adversity or the activating event 
that is causing the stress, and then they would identify your beliefs about such an event that are causing you harm, and they would show you the connection of how those beliefs are leading to negative consequences in your life. By preventing beliefs and adversities from being rigid, absolutistic, and uh, fictional or dysfunctional, the indirect emotional and behavioral consequences will be less self-defeating and destructive. So an example of that might be, we'll go back to the example of a relationship. So if somebody is broken up with in a relationship, they might have the belief that, well, because they were broken up with, they're not destined to be sad and lonely for the rest of their life. But what they miss there is their beliefs that are leading them to believe that. So perhaps they believe that since they're broken up with, they aren't a desirable person. And that's what's leading them to not have a good life after that or not be able to find someone. Or they might believe that they're never going to find someone who they're going to like as much as they liked the previous person. And in this case, both of those beliefs are unhealthy, unproductive, rigid, absolutistic, and not necessarily rational. Two ways that the therapy would go about dealing with this is it would first start by questioning those beliefs and the validity and the truth of those beliefs. So it would say, do you really think it's true that you'll never find someone who will make you as happy as this person? And if so, why do you believe that's the case? Is it about their qualities? Uh, do they have qualities that nobody else could, could have? Or do you believe there are people out there with similar qualities that could also give the same experience? And so in that case, if, if you're lucky, your beliefs are going to be irrational and you can just conquer it at that. And you go, well, you know what? Maybe I was being a little bit silly for thinking that obviously there's other fish in the sea. And, and go ahead with that new philosophy about it. But in some circumstances, it's such that your beliefs maybe are actually valid and true. So, um, and this is one of the important distinctions uh, about these therapies, uh, is people believe that uh, a problem with these therapies is that it suggests you can just be okay with any event that happens to you. Because um, no matter what happens to you, oh, we'll just change your beliefs about it, and then suddenly your, your consequences will be, will be different. But uh, that's not necessarily the case. In some circumstances, the beliefs might be justified. And instead uh, of challenging the truth of belief, you would then go to challenging whether or not that belief necessarily has to have that negative hold on you. So, for example, you would say, okay, well, I'm never going to get to be with them again. That might be a true belief, and you're certainly not going to dispute that. But instead, what you might dispute is, okay, so you're not going to be able to be with them again. But does that necessarily have to lead to the negative consequences in your life? Would you say the second one, so the rational motive therapy, is then a little bit closer to stoicism, where you kind of accept that something does create sad feelings, but you're not going to let those sad feelings overwhelm you, such as like the loss of a loved one. You know, it is a normal reaction to feel grief and sadness. But this idea that you're going to understand these feelings, maybe ruminate them a little bit as the normal grieving process, but not let it overwhelm you. And then kind of move forward. Yeah, I definitely think that's accurate. What's the clinical, I guess, evidence yeah. that this works? Yeah, so uh, there's actually, there's, uh, there's tons of, of clinical studies that support the efficacy of these kinds of treatments. Um, they've been found not to have, uh, you know, negative consequences in the way that other treatments might. Um, and they actually do have, if, if followed, and that's the important distinction, if, if the person will follow the process through and will, 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 accurately go through the process, address their beliefs, come to a new realization about those beliefs, and then actively practice challenging those beliefs when they come back up into, into mind with your new interpretation of them. Um, it, it's, ex, it's proven to be extremely effective at increasing uh, people's, uh, people's happiness, um, their ability to move on from, from grief. And, and yeah, it's no wonder that you know, the Stoics, contrary to popular belief, were such happy people because it's not just about getting over terrible life events, but it's also the life philosophy that will make you happier in general. Do you think that you need the therapist in order to fully complete this program? Mm -hmm. Or do you think that you can follow Stoicism on your own and still get to the same conclusion? So that's really interesting. I think it, it kind of depends on who you are uh, because obviously it would be more difficult to do it on your own uh, because we aren't naturally rational creatures and sometimes our emotions are foreign to us or, or, or our reasoning for our emotions are, are, are blocked to us in a way that they might not be blocked to somebody else. I think a great example of that would be you know, if your best friend comes to you for relationship advice it's not very difficult for you to give them, you know, very good, reasonable relationship advice that is very obvious to see how if they follow it, they're going to be better off. But then in your own relationship, it might not be so easy to do. So I definitely wouldn't say that 
that you can't in, as an individual follow the stoic process um, in, in this way because you definitely can and many people do but often it's helpful uh, just to surround yourself with other people who will help you in that process. I have a uh, maybe a, a side tangent of a question, but is this because of Hollywood? Hollywood's uh, you know giving us unrealistic expectations for relationships and for what's happiness. What's, does does media have a play in this? Or oh man, uh, you're, you're asking me why uh, why people are unhappy. You know what dry? I mean. I, I really, yes, Lena, do you have something to say about yes. that? Yes, I think one really important thing is this distinction of, like, what is happiness? And mm. the Stoics' definition of happiness is very different than, I would say, the Hollywood mass media, which is, like, all big smiles and, like, everything's great. Whereas the Stoics really focus on tranquility, so it's kind of, like, peacefulness of, like, life is good, you know, like, I'm content. So having a content relationship compared to a relationship that's full of fireworks so, so I wonder if that would play into it. Yeah, I, I guess I guess the what you could say, you know, subjectively, the problem with uh, you know some of these life goals coming out of you know what the media throws at us is the idea that they're rigid and absolutistic. So it's the idea that you know I need this or else I'm not going to be happy, right? And so uh, so that is just very contrary to the Stoic philosophies that uh, you do not need that. And although it can be beneficial to you to be happy, you don't need that to have that happiness. So, so yes, I, I think just, just in, in any element of life, uh, you know, avoiding that kind of absolutistic language is going to unbox you from your own kind of attempts to achieve something because it'll, it'll, it'll free you to be able to, to fail and to continue to be happy. It doesn't tie your happiness into, you know, some specific requirement. Sounds very stoic. Do you think that maybe some of these reasons that Kenny mentioned are the reasons why stoicism has found their rise? Because we have things like social media and increased issues with body images in Hollywood and messages that are coming at us from all different directions all the time. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. We're, we're constantly being told you need this, you want this, you know, you have to be this way. And, um, and yeah, maybe maybe as a little bit of a pushback, that's why stoicism is, is coming into into the centerfold. I feel like that's been like forever, though. I don't think it's a new thing. Like I feel like we can think of like traditional like fifties and sixties ads where it was also like you need to buy this, you need this to be like a happy housewife. So I think it is interesting that stoicism had this recent revival in the last twenty years. And I know in the meeting that we had, a lot of people kind of tied connections of stoicism to meditation and mindfulness and a lot of those practices are also I would say on the rise and I wonder if it's maybe like globalization or people are just hippies or I don't know (laughs) what this but there is definitely or maybe it's even just like mental health mental health awareness (laughs) realizing that mental health is an issue it's something that we all experience and that mental health isn't just something that people with depression anxiety experience but really across the board and that it really is a spectrum And that's why practices such as mindfulness and meditation and CBT are really beneficial to all people and not just those with a diagnosis. Uh, If if I had to come on that, I'd think that uh, it's not the reason... Oh, yes, I do agree that there's always been materialistic pursuits in the past. Um, But I think one of the main differences in our society today is the idea that, you know, we all actually can get all all of our basic needs met where uh i don't think that that has been true throughout all of society um so now we're in we're we're kind of forced to confront uh the stoic truth that happiness isn't tied to these things because we all have an abundance of things that we told ourselves would make us happy and and now for the first time we're we're realizing we have all these things but we're still unhappy some of us and uh so we need so it just kind of forces us to, to think of other reasons that, that might be dry, able to drive our happiness, if, if not these things. Again, I don't think it's a recent thing, though. Think of, like, Death of a Salesman. That was all about the American dream and a man's pursuit in achieving the American dream and then still not being happy. Well, yes, but I don't think in the Death of the Salesman he ever achieved the dream, mm-hmm. right? I, I think that's the key, is, 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 yeah, is, is as long as people are striving for these materialistic goods, they can, it, it's like the synthesis, you know, it's pushing the rock up the hill but never actually get there. Well, they can continue to tell themselves that if they got X, then they would be happy. But it's, it's easy to, to well, you, you can easily tell yourself that if you don't have X. 
But once you have X, it's harder to tell yourself that. I mean, you can keep pushing the boundary and then, so, okay, I want this a little bit more. I want a little bit more. But then I think, you know, it's, it's kind of hard for a reasonable person not to realize that, that they could do that indefinitely and they would never actually achieve, you know, full you know, contentment with where they are. So do you guys even practice uh, stoicism? And what's your, uh, your, your daily dose of Zen? <laughs> hmm. That's a very good question. I think unconsciously I focus on stoicism a little bit. Um, but I think that the parts that I focus on are also parts of humanism. So I try and do good in the world. I try and be conscious of what I put out into the world and that sort of thing. As And, and when I get angry or when I get upset about things, I try and rationalize things out. So I think unconsciously I've always done that. I've never called myself a stoic. I still wouldn't call myself a stoic. I don't know that I would go through many of the practices that stoics go through, but um, I think that unconsciously I've done those things. For, for me, it was definitely my turning point was really when I was volunteering at the distress center. It, it was just completely clear to me in terms of I, I can kind of reframe my mind and how I think and what I think about certain situations. And I pretty much was always more of a logical thinker, more of a rational thinker. But it, I, I think uh, def- definitely when it came to highly emotional situations, uh, logic kind of flies out the door. So yeah. um, I, I think I've gained perspective in terms of how I process information, uh, especially when I'm interacting with different people, especially when I'm interacting with very difficult people. I, I, I think I can turn off my lizard brain and really kind of think rationally about the situation. So I try to not push too much negativity out into my surrounding world. And really, again, trying to think from a logic standpoint, you know, what's actually happening in the situation and really what is of value to me and what I need to do to kind of address whatever that situation might be. I think for me, I don't think I'm a stoic, but I definitely realize that sometimes my emotions aren't tied, aren't very realistic. They're not tied to the actual situation and are maybe not rational or reasonable. So I would say I'm a very emotional person and sometimes have mood swings. And in those situations, I can realize that I'm feeling intense anger or intense sadness, but for no particular reason. And I think that kind of shows that you can feel these feelings and they're not always really linked to a situation. Or sometimes you can feel these feelings and realize that they're not proportionate to the situation. And I think just having that perspective is useful and helpful and maybe a little bit with the stoicism. The fact that you can kind of acknowledge that you're feeling like this, it's not reasonable. And let's actually focus on what the actual issue is and kind of like put those, you know, raw emotions aside and deal with is there an issue and how can I address this and what is in my control and what isn't. And if it's not, then... Let's just try and get through it. Is there some kind of balance people need to take? So, you know, we often hear feel the emotion, you know, we're emotional beings. You got to like, you know, feel it. You got to acknowledge it, especially, for example, uh, you know, maybe in our culture, boys tend to hide their feelings and new advice now is really, you know, you, you got to express emotions, you got to feel them. Mm-hmm. Is there some kind of balance between having these emotions, feeling it and logically thinking about it? how you're feeling i would say it's a personal thing i think it's really each their own i think the key thing is don't repress them Mm -hmm. and when you are really feeling it just feel it and let that happen and just be aware that you are in this moment like you're gonna feel in the feels and then just don't let it consume you yeah i think that kind of treads upon one of the misconceptions of stoicism is that you aren't supposed to feel the emotions It's, it's not that you aren't feeling them or experiencing them it's it's uh, you just you you reinterpret the way that you need, that those emotions have to affect you, so, or if you have extremely negative emotions that are causing problems with your coping, um, then then you can reevaluate those on an individual basis. So you know you, you can practice stoicism any any way that you want. I and I mean Stoics might not agree with that, but it's the, yeah. but from in my own perspective, I think that you know um, stoicism is more of a tool is a necessary lifestyle where you know you can live your life uh, experiencing all the emotions that you want to experience and if you ever find emotions are controlling you in a way that is detrimenting your life well here's a tool to go reevaluate those emotions and come to terms with uh with things that way you can you can get on with your life i think that experiencing emotions is so important 
as a human being. You know, we are mammals that are able to experience these different ranges of emotion and to experience them is, is a beautiful thing. And I think that we should embrace those feelings definitely without getting lost in them. And I think that's what stoicism really preaches is don't get lost in those feelings, enjoy them, appreciate them, um, but don't get lost in them. And I think that's a very hard sell to tell somebody who's maybe going through grief. Cause I remember times in my life where people have died and it's, it's an overwhelming feeling and it's hard to pull yourself out of while it is great to say like, let's feel these emotions and not get attached to them. It's, it can be so hard sometimes. I think that's probably one of the more challenging, I guess, areas to when it comes to, you know, death, especially close family members or friends will have the strongest emotional reaction to a situation like that. Uh, any thoughts in terms of how stoicism kind of applies to death? I mean, well, I, I think it's, it's preferable that we have those reactions. I, I think that, you know, if we lived in a society where you knew when someone you loved died, you were just going to, oh, just put them out in the trash and put them on the side of the road and you don't feel any emotions or any sentimentality toward that. I don't think that's that's the way that anyone would want to be or that's not the world that we would want to live in. So uh, it's definitely you know, what Sherry said about, not. it's not so much about not feeling those emotions, but just not, not letting them consume you or, or only allowing them to be felt to a reasonable extent that is useful and uh, w- without being excessive. Do you think this is more important for a humanist? Because I mean, a lot of religions, they process death differently and they kind of try and add a positive spin of the afterlife. And hmm. although they too experience a lot of grief, technically they should be happy because their loved ones are going to this like amazing place. And they will be visiting those people shortly. Yes. That's interesting. But as a humanist, we kind of see it as, you know, the lights go out yeah. and that's it. That's the end of the show. Yeah. So technically, grief should be harder for us, one would think. What are your thoughts on that? I think technically, I guess, humanists would have a more stronger reaction, net stronger maybe uh, a negative reaction to death than uh, maybe other people who believe in, you know, the afterlife. They would have less, um, less tools for dealing with yeah. those emotions. Because we, we can't use that kind of denial of the negative, mm-hmm. um, you know, so, so we, are, we are forced to accept the negative event. So I, I guess in a way that is how stoicism can help is it, 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 instead of having to deny the negative event as the tool, um, you accept the negative event, but you, you can change your beliefs about the event in terms of the way that they're going to affect your emotions. So it's, it's like trading one tool of irrationality for a similar tool using rationality, but they both can achieve the same outcome. I think that as humanists, as atheists, people who don't believe in God, that we have really attuned our tool of rationality. So I think that we're better prepared for Mm. that sort of ending to our lives because we've already exercised our rationality in getting to the place where we don't believe in God. And we don't believe in heaven. Or heaven or supernatural. So kind of like we're living this life knowing that this is the one life that we have and we're trying to make the best of it and we understand it's the same for everyone around us. Yeah. Uh, to me, for me at least personally, there's there's a value in knowing that, uh, you know, this this is, we only get one life. And to, to, you know, maximize uh, your happiness in this one life is would be an appropriate goal for I found Stoicism's belief on death really interesting Okay. because Stoicism happened 300 300 BC BC, and they were coming out with ideas of suicide and euthanasia back then that were very pro-euthanasia. So thinking rationally about your life, thinking about is this a hindrance to me living or... uh, can I keep going? And that sort of thing. And thinking about that rational idea, should you end your suffering or should you keep going? I think that's, that we think euthanasia is this very new modern concept, whereas they were talking about it back then. I know I read an article recently about the, uh, somebody who survived the Walkerton water disaster that happened. He came out of that with so many neurological diseases, stuff like that. Like he couldn't function. He couldn't get out of bed. His value on life was a little bit lowered because he couldn't experience what he wanted to and he recently decided to be euthanized 
And now that we have that legal in Canada, he's able to do that. So he kind of rationalized, is this life hindering me? Is it time to move on? And decided that it was time to to finish. So what is the Stoics' view on something like euthanasia and death? Because you would think that in a situation where, you know, you have a disability, that they would say, this is no longer in your control. Focus on the things that are within your control. You know, you can't control what has happened to you. So now you need to kind of take these negative emotions, understand them, but don't let them like overwhelm, overwhelm you and move forward. You can control now the choice of how things end for you. So do you want to prolong things and suffer longer or would you like to finish earlier without living through that suffering? And I know that they thought it was a little bit about reclaiming personal freedom and autonomy and being able to make your own choices in life. How, how, do you, how does a Stoic even square the idea of suffering with their other philosophies? I mean, because Stoicism is, is in, it, I, and this might be my misinterpretation of it, but I, I interpret it to be kind of like an antidote to suffering. It, you know, the, so the Stoic suffers the loss. Well, I guess they don't suffer. They experience the loss, but they don't suffer it. So I, w- I would be interested if speaking with a Stoic, you know, if there would be like what circumstances they would consider to be circumstances such that suffering was legitimate to the extent where a reasonable action would be to end your life. Yeah, it's, to me, it's, it's hard to draw that line, right? It, it's almost to me, it sounds like a very personal choice if you were a Stoic to need to define where that fine line is. And I mean, it could be, there could be gradients of suffering and one end of suffering. I mean, it's in their perspective, clearly this is like end of life type of uh, option would be, they would be considering, whereas other types of suffering, they can get over it. To me, maybe there's a gradient there, but at the end of the day, how do you, how does one define the gradient? It's probably very personal. I, I don't know how else, there's no scientific method you could measure really uh, the degree of suffering. I think you could create like a pros and con list and sort of look through here are the pros to living longer, here are the cons, and do it scientifically that way. But that that in itself is still very personal. I think it's a very personal thing. Well, going back to assuming that no amount of su- or that no suffering is necessary to be suffered under the Stoic view, I think maybe it wouldn't be so much a gradient of an amount of suffering that would justify the end of life, but maybe more in an amount in the amount in which you're able to be stoic. Because I don't think that anyone is 100% perfectly stoic. Obviously, if you were, I, I think it it follows necessarily logically that you know, perfect stoicism would be a perfect antidote to suffering. So a perfect stoic would never would never need to exercise that option. However. So, so perhaps instead the gradient would be uh, it got more like an amount of suffering relative to your capability as an individual to handle that with stoicism. It's interesting because I've looked into some of the practices of stoics and there were a couple that I found interesting like fasting and self-imposed discomfort. So taking things away from you so that you don't get attached to them. And that sort of thing to prepare you it's for training. later on in life. Yeah, yeah, so they're training themselves. And you constantly, and that's back to my research about, uh, you know, these rational therapies. It's, it's, it's all a continual practice of these rational principles. And I don't think you ever get to a state where, where you just are a stoic. You constantly have to practice your stoicism. So do you think that is there any benefit to me fasting or like adding some... A degree of suffering into my life just to prep myself or I think maybe you don't have to actually go as far to actually practice the suffering but maybe just imagine what would it like if you didn't have food what would it be like if can you, you accurately know, imagine that though not fully accurate but I know Ron in his presentation mentioned this idea of trying to imagine you know if your favorite mug broke yeah. what would your initial reaction be and what is a reasonable rational reaction yeah. you know like to you know, you'd be sad, but should you really be that upset about yeah. a mug breaking? Yeah. And then kind of grading that higher to the point of what if my loved one passed away? How would I feel and how can I accept the fact that one day my loved one may pass away, I may pass away, you know? I think a lot of that also is a reminder of what we take for granted. 
So realizing like, oh, I take these things for granted by looking at them logically and rationally as well is part of stoicism. So if I'm really worried about my girlfriend breaking up with me, I sit in a room and I imagine the pain of my girlfriend breaking up with me just like on repeat. No. And then when it happens, <laughs> I don't have to, is that kind of like the line? I, I guess you, you would you would look for the situations that would be unbearable to you and then those are the ones that you would maybe want to practice. No, no, no. You no. would think what would it be like if I broke up with you, mm-hmm. okay? And how would you initially maybe feel about that? But how would life go on? You know, what would you do if that happened? What are things, you know, how could you move on with your life? What are other pursuits that you could achieve? You know, the idea that you would not be dependent, Mm -hmm. you know, on another person, that your happiness isn't focused on one person on this one relationship, that life goes on for you. And that's the idea that you're grateful that, you know, you have this relationship, but if it wasn't there, you would still be okay. Maybe not initially, but in the long I, term. I was more wondering, where, where do you draw the line? Uh, you know, on what side of the line are, are things that aren't worth ruminating or practicing preparing for the loss of? And what things are maybe worth practicing and preparing for the loss of? I, w- I wonder if a Stoic would say you should practice and prepare for the loss of all things, uh, equally large and small. But obviously there is, a, there is some cost to this training, you know, if, if you're fasting, if you're constantly giving up all of your possessions, just so that way you can be okay with not having any of these things, you know, and, and what if the thing that you would have lost wouldn't have upset you that much anyway? Is it even worthwhile training for that lot to, to prepare yourself for that loss? Or, or should this kind of stoic practice be saved for only the most impactful of potential life events. I think it should be for everything, but I think it should be more of a thought experiment than an actual restrict yourself from things. I mean, I think the whole idea is that you are appreciative of what you have, but you can let it go if time comes. So it's this idea of indifference. They are preferred. It's nice to have your favorite mug, but if it breaks, it's not that bad. It's not going to affect your overall happiness. So how do you practice that indifference purely philosophically? I think you just think, you know, I like having my phone. It's a nice phone. If it broke, I could get a new phone, you know? But you, that's my point, though, is you can, you can only think about these indivi- so many of these individual cases, you know? And I, I, I don't think that some overarching kind of blanket indifference is actually applicable enough in practice to individual events. So if you're practicing a blanket indifference, that can only go so far when your brother dies in front of you, where I feel like in that case, a more specific practice of indifference would have been better at preparing you. So, so that's kind of what I'm asking is, is, you know, is a blanket indifference kind of sufficient on a stoic view? Or, or are there specific indifferences that are worth practicing, whether it's a it's a mental practice or a physical practice in reality. And what, like, I don't care that much if I lose my phone. Should I, how much mental effort should I allocate toward becoming indifferent to, you know, whether or not I have my phone versus any of the other things in my life? Well, I think you just answered yeah. that. If you right. already don't care that much, you've already established that you would be okay. I think the question, though, is do you take in an inventory of your entire life and entire possessions yes. and then start, like, looking at each individual one? I think we just have so many things, so many factors. Yes. I, I can't imagine this is a productive use of time. <laughs> because uh, maybe... I mean, in my mind, you know, uh, part of happiness, to me at least, is, you know, again, living the best life you have and you only, again, have a short amount of time. And I don't know how much you really want to allocate <laughs> a longer time preparing for the end right. or of things. And uh, I don't know if there's some kind of, like, graph you can draw mentally in terms of the, the greatest pain and how much you need to prepare for. <laughs> oh, or maybe even, even the most probabilistic pain that you may experience. Yeah. So, so some combination of severity and probability, then what you can practice. Yeah. Or a radical idea. Instead of focusing on everything that you can lose, focus on what you have and will always have. And just this kind of... Is that, is that stoic? Yeah. yeah. It's also focusing, realizing that you can only control things that you are able to control. Mm. Your own abilities. The contents of your mind. Yeah, the contents of your mind. So focus on that and be grateful and appreciative of that. And then kind of trying to 
Realize that everything else you appreciate, but isn't always everlasting. Okay, so that would be the blanket. Uh, I would think so. And okay. it's a lot more positive, you know? Focus on the positive opposed to the potential negatives of everyday life. Well, I was going to go home and make a list of everything I'm going to lose. <laughs> well, I know and Rod. going to die. Well, we all lose everything, yeah, eventually. Rod, though, was saying that he, he practices by imagining losing his children, his partner. Right. Like, I don't think that's necessarily a positive practice. I think you should focus more on the fact that you have that as opposed to preparing to lose it. I don't, I don't think those think, are mutually exclusive. Yeah, I don't think he's preparing to lose it. I think he's, in a sense, just being appreciative of the time he has and maybe just acknowledging that time is numbered. Yeah, if you spend every day worrying about the loss of some object, are you really going to be able to spend any time actually in appreciation of that object, or is it all going to be protecting and worrying about that loss? I think it sounds counterintuitive, but by practicing, um, you know, putting yourself in the state where you lose that thing, and then realizing you would be okay, that can alleviate the, the, the pressure that's on you or the fear of that loss to allow you to then come back to the present moment and fully be able to appreciate it, not out of fear of losing it, but really just for, for having it in the moment. So then do you think you should only practice these sorts of specific cases on things that you fear? Like if you fear losing a relationship, then you should focus yes. specifically your practice on that. So, it's, so we talked about making an entire inventory is not really practical, but maybe instead thinking about what you fear. So I totally. fear, you know, my dog getting hurt. And so then I would focus on that and and practice stoicism in that way. Yeah, maybe only on things that are, are negatively affecting you. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, people fearing the loss of certain things does negatively prevent them from from ever really fully appreciating them, you know? Uh, like, fearing the loss of life, you may sit in a padded room your entire life, you know, and never actually go and experience it. You know, fearing the loss of a relationship, you may spend all of your time being jealous or, or you know, trying to control variables uh, but, and become insufferable to your partner, right? But, uh, you know, so, so maybe practicing um, stoicism to get rid of these fears is, is in a way the healthy like a healthy way of of enjoying those elements of life i disagree well i don't know if i disagree but i think really the main thing should be being aware that you can't control a lot of things that we kind of just pass through life and we're in control of our own beings and enjoying the things around us but being aware that we can't control it and i think without going to specifics of items or people or events just being appreciative of the time that you have and that if something happens, you cannot control it. Yeah, I, it all sounds like, I mean, life is so unpredictable. I mean, like, you, we could encounter a situation tomorrow where you lose your favorite computer or something. And so life is so random. It feels like you you got to be prepared mentally. To go with the flow. Yeah, to go with the flow. Things are going to happen. you got to just accept it. <laughs> and you got to, like, move on. I'm not sure thinking too deeply into all the potential things that you might lose would be helpful. But I think practice, even, I guess maybe even in our daily lives, we could practice this because I'm sure in our daily lives, things happen every now and then that maybe irks you uh, occasionally. And uh, I think when you kind of feel that negative emotion, maybe that's when you need to like realize I need to practice now. Yes. Figuring this out. Yeah, I, I definitely see it that way. Uh, uh, so, so, yeah, just to try to clear up any misconception potentially between Selena and I is uh, the idea that you would have this blanket philosophy that you try your best to live by, but with the acknowledgement that as humans, you know, we're, we're valuable, you know, we, we aren't going to be perfect stoics all the time. So then in the situation where, where you fail to be a perfect Stoic and you notice, like I said, that you have a, an event that is negatively affecting you or you have a fear that is negatively affecting you, obviously with a perfect blanket Stoicism, you wouldn't have any fears of any, of any loss. But I guess what I'm saying is in, in the situation where you find yourself with a fear, mm -hmm. that's where you prescribe a more direct approach of practicing Stoicism to alleviate that and kind of get back to that blanket uh, you know, state. Okay, that does clear things up. Well, I think that was a great discussion, you guys. So, I agree. Um, 
So any, any kind of uh, thoughts around, you know, we talked a lot today, uh, but uh, does anyone have any like recommendations on terms of further readings or? The website, The Daily Stoic is where I got a lot of my information. And it's actually a website that Rod recommended to me for further information. They have some great articles really down to earth sort of talking to you instead of talking at you. Uh, so hi, I highly recommend the Daily Stoic. For me, uh, you know, I, I mentioned, uh, you know, one of my examples was the, the stress center. I, I think giving back has always been one of those things that, you know, gave me happiness. And I highly recommend people, you know, check out websites like uh, Charity Village uh, to find opportunities to volunteer. Or the Pillar Network. Is or the Pillar great. Network, yeah. And that's, I mean, that's kind of also goes back into stoicism, mm -hmm. leading the virtuous life, you know, like doing good things. And if you're doing good things, you'll feel good about yourself and you'll live that happiness and that tranquility. And maybe you'll take something positive away from the podcast, uh, you know, into your own life. If you could practice a little bit of uh, kind of what I mentioned with these rational therapies on yourself, try that self-practice. If you have something that you feel you fear or something that has been holding you back, you know, an event perhaps in the past that you feel is directly correlated with your negative feelings in the present, maybe take a little bit of time to uh, critically analyze what exactly your beliefs about those events are that are really causing you to feel that way and make sure that they are realistic, you know, they are absolutistic, and analyze those and see if you can maybe come to a, a, a more positive, healthy, productive interpretation of that event. Okay, so that's it for now. Before we end off, I'm just going to announce some upcoming events that we have in London, Ontario, if you're in the city. The next monthly meeting is going to be on June 20th at 7pm in the Central Public Library. We have moved from our normal room into the Stevenson Hunt Room B, which is right beside our regular room. Please take note of the location and date change for this monthly meeting due to a conflict in our speaker's schedule. We'll still be having a talk on patriotism by Dr. Charles Jones. Our summer solstice picnic is coming up on Friday, July 9th. This is a members-only event, so this is a great time for you to start a new membership or renew your membership. More details will be announced at the next meeting and through our email list. Please make sure that you sign up at our next meeting if you are coming. Lastly, just as a reminder that the Pride Parade is coming up on July 29th. We are excited to have one of our members getting married in the parade. If you would like to borrow or purchase a Hala Pride shirt, please talk to one of the board members at the next meeting, or feel free to email any board member. Make sure you're on the mailing list to receive more details as they become available closer to the date. For show notes, links, and contact info, please visit our website at www.humanistagenda.com. If you would like to discuss the episode, you can find us on Reddit, and we have a comment section on our website as well. We look forward to hearing your feedback and hope you'll join us on our next episode. I hope I didn't talk too much. That was not thing. I didn't. I noticed I might have taken up a little bit. Don't worry, I'll cut you out. <laughs> <laughs>